Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. You're all right. You're a little glum today, aren't you? It's not been the best week for Parliament, I don't think. No, and it's got you down. Well, I think everybody's feeling slight sort of Brexit teague, I think. Even you with all your boundless optimism. Yeah, yeah. We're pushing the envelope of Reasons to be Cheerful this week, I think. I think the thing that's cheered me up the most, it's not my reason to be cheerful, was a picture on like one of those welcome to nature twitter feeds of a a 103 year old tortoise that had adopted a baby hippo i nearly tweeted it in the middle of the brexit vote voting and Lindsay, who works for me said i don't think so i don't know no matter how grim things get you there's always, always the baby tortoise up by or a nice, turtle maybe animal tortoise, photo. Yeah, yeah yeah um before you got here today i was on the yougov website mm. and i have some news for you yeah. Reasons to be cheerful is the 45th most popular radio program slash podcast in the country. Wow. Including all the radio shows like Desert Island. How Desert do they measure things. the popularity? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm guessing they're constantly That's quite serving. Exciting. So do, do you want some, do you want some uh, statistics? Yeah, go then? on. So 18% of people have heard of our podcast. Is that true? According to YouGov. Now, of, of, of those 18, it is made up of 8% have a positive view of the podcast. Yeah. Seven percent neutral, yeah, but only three percent negative. Negative view of the podcast. <laughs> Who are they? They're only three percent of the eighteen. Um, do you want some other? Th- so, so yeah. uh, some other data that I can give you yeah. from YouGov is that uh, people who like our podcast, the other thing they are most likely to like, yeah, is a TV program called One Hundred Years Younger in Twenty One Days. Are you making all this no, up? No, no, go on, you go. Do you want some other things that people who like the podcast, they also like? Yeah. Uh, Bristol Women's Football Club. Mm. Courtney Kardashian. Mm. Do you know who that is? Someone, one of the Kardashians. Good guess, yeah. And, uh, and, and a, a musical artist, Naughty Boy. Are you familiar with his oeuvre? I prefer his early stuff. <laughs> And and then I dug into it a little bit further. So the podcast is kind of equally popular amongst the age groups. Yeah. However, what? you Ed, yeah, are most popular with millennials. Ah. I feel like you've given me some selective editing to sort of edit out the bad bits of this. No. That's, that's... How do you even know? I mean, how do they? 18% of people yes. is is basically quite close to like 10 million, more than, it's like about 10 million people. Mm. Well, 
you know, obviously our listenership is about nine and a half million. But I mean, <laughs> where, are, where they? are they getting those? Where are they all? <laughs> anyway, I thought I thought you'd enjoy. Uh, that means also it's eighty-two percent of people to convert. Exactly. Okay, you've cheered me up. He's on a mission. Yeah. Uh, so, what are we talking about this week then? We're talking about how we can overcome the divides in our society. I think it's fair to say we're pretty polarised. I mean, that's just you and me. <laughs> uh, and whether it's Brexit and Remain, Trump or not Trump, everything else, uh, it all feels pretty divided, doesn't it? Mm. And there are these interesting projects that try and bring people together, not necessarily to agree with each other, but to understand each other's point of view. And so we're talking about that. I'll tell you what I don't think the answer is. Go on. Screaming at each other. No. There's just too much of that. Well, that is just... what's ruined Twitter, hasn't it? And it's such a human impulse that when you feel attacked, you just fold your arms yeah. and, and like... close off like you're doing now. Yeah. And, um, and, and you don't even listen to yeah. what the other person has to say. So how do we do that without people feeling attacked and how we do it? Without, well, that is the Twitter ourselves? problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that's what we're talking about this week. And in addition to that, we are joined by comedian Imran Youssef, who's going to be pitching us some ideas, potential ideas, which could be reasons to be cheerful, or ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Got that What's your end. reason to be cheerful? I went to see an exhibition at Somerset House in London. It's fantastic. It runs until the beginning of March. I can't recommend it highly oh, enough. Oh, that's great. It's a Peanuts exhibition. Oh, it's we love Charles Peanuts. Charles Schultz. And it's this wonderful story of him and how he created this cartoon that i've loved since i was a kid and it's so kind of melancholy in its yeah. way who do you identify with charlie brown yeah in fact i remember reading a charlie linus brown... is he from with the blanket yeah yeah, yeah. A, bit, a bit of linus too yeah. i remember being about eight years old and reading a charlie brown strip in which he mentioned having an inferiority complex wow. and going downstairs to my mum as an eight-year-old and say mum i think i've got an inferiority complex really and she said don't be so silly you haven't got an inferiority complex but i have as it turns out i was right all those years but anyway so it's also saying don't be so silly slightly yeah makes maybe you feel, feel a bit inferior. inferior yeah yeah um but it's it's really good and it looks at how the peanuts uh strips have touched on things like feminism sounds great vietnam I'm, can it's, i it's, take my children then? yeah they'll love it it's it's so good that's it's, really good yeah, recommendation yeah it's fantastic. genuinely and, uh, and what's your reason i mean i have been struggling to find one okay if i'm honest the best i can do is i'm going to iceland you're, go- you're going to Iceland. Well, we're going to we're eloping to Iceland next weekend, aren't we? I do feel as if I bullied you into letting me come with no, you. No, you didn't at all. I'm I'm sort of delighted. I mean, it's a slight sense of awkwardness because I didn't tell you this, but I said to Justine that I didn't think she really would want to come, and then I had break her last night that you were coming instead. <laughs> so I, but she said that she was very sort of you know open-minded and therefore it was fine but we're not just going on a lads weekend no away, well we? that's why i sort yeah, of explained yeah. that there was a sort of specific purpose to to you coming mm, which um, is which is we're going to be doing reasons to be icelandic which is very exciting. Lots of interesting things going exciting. on in Iceland. It's one of the best places for uh, gender equality yeah. in the world. They do lots of interesting things uh, in, with environmental policies. So we're going to go over there. Elves. And... Yeah, trolls. Do you think we might meet trolls. a troll? I wouldn't rule it out. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to Marina Cantacuzino, who is the founder of The Forgiveness Project. Uh, Marina, thanks for talking to us. Um, first up, can you tell us about The Forgiveness Project and, and why it was that you set that up? It was really a project that grew out of anger and moral outrage, actually, just in the aftermath of the Iraq war. I was working as a journalist at the time, and there was this picture of 12-year-old Ali Abbas 
who had lost both his arms and his entire family in the opening days of the walk when a US missile struck his home. And the Guardian headline at the time was, this war isn't worth a child's finger. And I don't know, you know, sometimes something just really affects you. That picture, the haunted, traumatized look in that boy's eyes just really upset me so much. I just thought, I, you know, as a journalist, I've just got to do something. And over the next year, I guess, I was doing quite a lot of traveling and working for organizations like Oxfam and the Red Cross. And I just thought I need to try and find stories that showed people who had broken out of cycles of hate. Because there was this real tit-for-tat politics going on. You know, I think George Bush, he said, if you're not with us, you're against us. And I just thought, I want to find stories where people didn't react like that. It was the only thing I could do. And can you tell us a little more about the type of stories you collected and maybe give us some examples? I collected the stories where I went. So I went to Israel and Palestine and America, South Africa, Northern Ireland. So the Kaifa story was someone, for instance, called Rami Alahan, whose young teenage daughter was killed in a suicide bomb. And, you know, I'm going to praise it because the stories are complex and lengthy and it takes a long time to reach a place of compassion, empathy and forgiveness. But, for instance, he came to a point eventually where he was able to believe that the suicide bomber was a victim, like his daughter, grown bitter from poverty and shame. And then he works for something called the Parent Circle, which brings together families who've lost loved ones, both on both sides of the Palestinian and Israeli conflict. There's also Eva Kaur, who was uh, a survivor of Auschwitz. She was experimented on with her twin by Mengele, took her years to reach a place of forgiveness and she's quite unpopular for it you know especially with her own community but nevertheless she stands up there and she says i forgive because i deserve it not because the nazis deserve it is the implication of what you're saying that forgiveness is in the interest of the forgiver as well as the forgiven yeah i mean you could say that it is a pain management strategy that it is an act of self-healing as well as helping helping to reform the person who's harmed you. And there's a lot of research actually out there to say it's a you know it's an extraordinary good public health tool. You could argue in that it creates less anxiety, less depression, better relationships, actually better health. There's a really interesting, very longitudinal study over several years which shows that if you have a forgiving attitude you will live longer. Wow. Which kind of makes sense because if you have a forgiving attitude, you're less stressed. You know, it's very much linked up with stress, I think. What do you think we can learn from the more extreme examples that the Forgiveness Project deals with of people, you know, having relatives killed and, and so on, uh, you know, suffering terrible injuries themselves and practicing forgiveness? What, what? How can we apply those lessons back into the more everyday conflicts yeah. that we have in our politics, whether it's sort of Brexit versus Remain or Trump voters versus not? What are these sort of key insights that we should draw, do you think? For me, the key thing, I mean, because everything that I do as a journalist and as collecting the stories is to do with narrative and storytelling. Um, and that's all about having conversations and building connections. So I think many of the stories, they are quite extreme, the stories you're right to point that out and in a way as a journalist I wanted that because I wanted to grab people's attention resentment and and hatred and 
and all those emotions are in all of us a lot of the time towards people, you know, that we brush up against or people in our families or friends or whatever. So I'm, I, for me, the main thing and the main learning I've taken from it is all the work that I've done around restorative approaches and restorative justice, which is bringing together two sides, really. I mean, restorative justice, in, its impurity is bringing a, an offender and victim together in order to mend and repair. And it's such an incredible model for for dealing with conflict, both internal conflict, helping you resolve that, but also in terms of helping communities repair. So it's, uh, it helps you repair your heart and your community, if you like. So face-to-face, proper, authentic meeting where people are able to show their vulnerability um, and where they see each other as human is the only way forward. You wrote something recently saying a more compassionate politics doesn't mean we all have to agree or that we don't rigorously hold people accountable, but it does mean refraining from name-calling and mudslinging. I felt very inspired by Brenny Brown, who's, who's written a lot about shame and vulnerability. And she's very clear that, you know, name-calling, for instance, even calling the police pigs, for instance, it poisons our water supply from which we all have to drink. So uh, you know, it wasn't long ago that I saw a tweet at which said about Donald Trump, said, and the tweet said, I really, really thought you'd be dead by now. That was the caption across Donald Trump and his wife. And even though I find it very hard to find compassion and forgiveness to Donald Trump myself, it really offended me, that tweet. I thought nothing in that tweet, although you might say I was on the same side, nothing in it is going to help anything because it's just a cycle of poisonous rhetoric. So I think I really do think language is important as well, you know, as well as connection and 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 meeting the enemy in inverted commas, if you like. Marina, thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So we're joined now by Joe Hiley, who uh, worked as an organizer for the group called Hope Not Hate and the More in Common project, which aimed to bring together divided communities. Uh, and this project that Joe worked on sought to bring together people from Brixton, which had the highest number of Remainers in the UK, with Boston in Lincolnshire, which had the highest uh, leave vote. And funding for the project comes from the Joe Cox Memorial Fund. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of this project and how it came about. When I was working as an organiser for Hope Not Hate, uh, we received a proportion of the donations to the to the Joe Cox Memorial Fund. And what we were doing as a result was setting up more in common groups across the country. And they would be people who wanted to find sort of tangible ways of building bridges in their community. So figuring out who needed to be brought together in their particular area. Um, and w- one of the places that I facilitated a first meeting um, for that project was in Lambeth in Brixton, um, where I lived at the time. That first meeting also ended up happening quite shortly after the referendum result. Um, and obviously Lambeth had the highest Remain vote. So an awful lot of people came along. The room was packed. Um, and when we were mapping out how we could bring people in our community together, build bridges, a lot of the points that were being raised were actually there's plenty we could do locally, but also surely we've just demonstrated that a big part of the problem is that communities aren't talking to each other 
in, in different parts of the country. And, and I think a lot of the people there, it can be hard to remember now, but a lot of the people there were really taken off guard um, by by the Leave vote. Um, so they kind of wanted to understand other communities. They looked it up and the highest Leave vote was in Boston. And I remember being really, really quite nervous at the idea. Um, I come from Lincolnshire myself. Um, and I thought, oh, no, like, it's going to seem like all these Remain voters trying to tell Leave voters what to do. We're going to seem like the metropolitan elite of London or something like that. Um, but actually, the spirit of the project um, was always one of kind of friendship and understanding rather than um, particularly wanting to seem superior in any sort of way. Um, so it worked out really well. And so tell us about the first sort of how you went about kind of engaging people in Boston and then and sort of what happened? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that happen concurrently. One was uh, we sat down and figured out the best approach to trying to reach out with a message of, of friendship. Um, so we went out in Windrush Square in Brixton and asked people to send uh, questions about what we had in common and, and general sort of yeah, friendly messages. So we, we had people saying, you know, we have a historic market. We hear that you have a historic market. We have a tall tower in the town hall and we've heard that you've got the same thing. And we filmed little video clips. And at the same time, we heard a guy called Julian uh, from Boston speaking on the radio about Brexit as a Leave voter and saying how he felt the whole issue had been oversimplified um, and actually he was really worried about the situation in his community, how neglected they all felt. We managed to get in touch with him and he called me while I was doing my shopping um, and we just chatted a little bit about how he was feeling um, and that resulted in a, a wider group Skype call with him and eventually an invite up to Boston as, as an initial quite small group of us uh, to get to know them. And how did that go? Brilliantly. It was it was amazing. He, uh, he took us on a tour. Um, everyone became quite firm friends. He made everyone breakfast. He took us to the pub. Did you mention the B word? As in Brexit rather than Brixton <laughs> or Boston? Not that much, to be honest. Um, it was our highlighting difference, but the point was to find the things that we shared. So it, yeah. it wasn't a space for political discussion so much as kind of demonstrating the things we had in common. So so an interesting discussion that we had, for example, was about um, access to housing. You know, in London, in streets of Brixton, obviously there's been issues with gentrification, but also the quality of housing, the high house prices and things like that. And in Boston, um, they've got some of the highest house prices or, or rent prices kind of compared to income um, in, that, in that region. So we were actually talking about... Um, what are actually the things that we tend to struggle with in a similar way or in a comparable way, uh, rather than focusing on on the point of division, really. And after that first meeting, I know you're no longer working for Hope Not Hate, but has it become a continuing project? And what's been the sort of substance of that? Yes. So it's really exciting. So they've sent um, a couple of coaches back and forth. Uh, so there was a big coach trip from Lambeth to Boston, I think, last year. Um, and the people it included were amazing. So there were people who worked in interfaith who went over and met similar people doing interfaith activities up in Boston. Uh, there was a community gardening project that met similar people over in Boston. And there were a group of 16 to 18 year olds from Stockwell um, who went over and, and met some young people from over there. So it's become sort of quite a fixed exchange project. They are currently looking into the next one of those. Um, and the other thing that, that happened that's the most exciting thing really is Boston set up their own more in common group. 
So um, they're they're huge now. Uh, last time I checked, they had about two thousand members of their Facebook group, which wow. is kind of a discussion group of lots of good things. But they've put on community projects like they've started a multilingual chapel, so people from different languages can can all kind of worship in whatever way they like in the same space. They are involved in things like the Christmas lights. I hear that they've got um, an an 80s night coming up uh, where Sounds both the Eastern European community and uh, the longer term Boston community are all going to go watch an ABBA tribute act. And I hear that about 350 people have bought tickets, which is incredible. The group in Boston, more uncommon now, um, has a big sort of committee of leave voters and also uh, local Eastern Europeans, uh, which is where a lot of the tension in Boston was around um, uh, quite a rapid influx of, of immigration. So it's more in common within communities and between communities? Yes. Yeah, so now both groups are doing things within their own communities and they are uh, also continuing to visit each other and learn about each other. So, so what is a key thing if you want to get people talking to each other and you want to get past one group of people shouting you're detached you're in elite and the other group of people shouting you're you're really informed or you're, you're a racist yeah or you're a racist what's 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 the first thing is it not talking about the elephant in the room and and bonding over the things we've got uh, the similarities we have uh, sort of yes asking questions about people's lives and figuring out what's important to them i'm still a community organizer now albeit for the labor party and we teach people to sit down and have one-to-one meetings as often as possible because actually getting to know someone has infinite value if you're looking to try and change a community you know understanding their sort of day-to-day lives will mean that you know when you're talking politics actually you're coming from a position of understanding that the political can never be completely separated from people's personal lives because it impacts everything day to day and at hope not hate we would definitely say if someone's made a sweeping statement ask people you know what made you come to that belief have you witnessed anything like what's your experience been and you delve into what, what actually people's worries are which often are a bit more complicated than the kind of more prejudiced exterior joe thanks so much for joining us no problem it was great to speak to you We're excited to be joined now by Kieran O'Connor and John Wood Jr., who are part of something called Better Angels. Thank you both for joining us. And I wondered if I could start by asking you to explain what Better Angels is and and why you felt the need to, to start it. Well, first of all, Ed, Jeff, thank you so much for having us uh, on as guests today. And uh, it's a terrific platform that you have, and we're very delighted to be, uh, uh, to be with you. Uh, Better Angels is an organization that was founded in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, which, as you'll know, was you know really just about the most contentious uh, presidential or political election in modern American uh, modern American history. And, uh, you know, people came out of that with relationships, personal relationships ruined, to say nothing of the political, you know, decay that seemed to uh, both proceed and follow from that election. And that's a major problem, regardless of what side of the aisle you found yourself on. So um, the founders of the organization, uh, David Blankenhorn uh, and Professor Bill Doherty of the University of Minnesota, Minnesota brought together, had the idea to bring together uh, a group of Trump voters and a group of Hillary Clinton voters in the aftermath of the election for, I guess, what was what uh, sort of a two two day it was sort of a weekend. Yes, it was a, a weekend, and the model for the workshop was based on family therapy, 
which I don't know had ever been tried in a, a political context, at least within the United States. Um, John mentioned Bill. He's a, a longtime family therapist who specializes in working with couples who are on the brink of divorce. And so he developed this workshop based on his experience with couples. And it was uh, a whole weekend workshop right. in which the participants engaged in very structured dialogues that enable people to talk about politics within the context of their own lived experiences mm -hmm. and to be able to express their views and listen to the other side without trying to change each other's minds. That's one of the core uh, ground rules, if you will, of our work is that you're not here to change the other person's mind. You're here to talk and to listen and in so doing better understand both the uh, opposing perspective and the opposing people as human beings, because one thing that gets lost in the, the polarization, which I'm sure you guys have found in the UK as well, is a sense of common humanity. And, it, and the, the denigration and the demonization can ultimately um, lead to dehumanization. And, um, you know, yeah. that can get to a very scary place. But, John, yeah. why don't I well, let you so, continue on? Well, you're right. So, lo and behold, some extraordinary relationships were formed out of this initial workshop. And uh, it gave, uh, it gave uh, David and Bill the idea that, you know what, this is something that we could do all over the country and that perhaps the country needs. So Better Angels grew from that initial activity into a nationwide volunteer-led organization that has chapters in states across the country, that has thousands of dues-paying members, that has sprung its own digital media network that is dedicated uh, to the modeling of depolarizing discourse and a more depolarizing fashion of commenting um, on political issues. Can I just see if I'm understanding this right? You organize these sessions, which are, are a bit like family therapy sessions now, uh, around the country. There are thousands of people joining in with these. And then there's a d debate component to it as well. Can you just talk us through what, what I mean, yeah. are they church hall meetings? What do they look right. like? So there are a few different, there, we have a few different programs. The thing that we're best known for is our Red Blue Workshop. And to break it down, these are typically seven-hour uh, seven fairs. So we bring in uh, reds, conservatives, blues, liberals, or people who lean in those directions uh, for the seven-hour workshop program uh, and uh, where uh, we put them through a series of guided exercises where, as Kieran said, they not so much debate politics but speak from the vantage point of their own lived experiences as to why it is they see politics the way they do. So, for instance – uh, one of the exercises that's contained in this uh, workshop is something called a stereotypes exercise, where we take each side and each side lists the most common pejorative stereotypes that they feel the other side has about them, that reds feel that blues have about them or blues feel that reds have about them. And uh, we give them an opportunity to make a presentation to the other side as to why these they feel these stereotypes miss the mark. Right. But there's also a component of that where they are asked to reflect on what the kernel of truth might be in the stereotype. So, for instance, um, the most common stereotype we hear reds articulate that they see blues as having about them, which they feel is untrue, is that reds, conservatives, Trump voters or Republicans are racist. And so they're allowed to to point that out and to give their reasons as to why they think that's not true. But then they're asked to reflect on whether or not there might be a kernel, the germ of truth in the stereotype. Because stereotypes are usually reflective of some reality, even if they're grossly exaggerated. Usually the reds will reflect on that and say, well, 
while we do believe it's true that in the vast majority, Republicans and or conservatives are not racist, it's certainly true that there's some some people in our midst who may have voted for Trump or for our candidate or for our party uh, who do hold uh, prejudiced sentiments and. And we don't feel that's reflective of us, but we'll acknowledge that there are those elements that are that vote like we do and that we should be mindful and, and conscious of challenging that. And blues, on the other hand, will frequently be accused of, let's say, wanting to give all the power to the government, right? Or, or being not, snowflakes. Or being snowflakes or, or not wanting to work. So let's just say, for instance, blues are 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 saying that, well, uh, reds say that we just want to rely on the government for everything. And that's not true. You know, Blues will say that you know, we're enterprising entrepreneur. We want to work. We want to earn our keep uh, just like everyone else. But they might say, but, you know, we do know that there's a certain number of people amongst us who might game the system or might abuse welfare or what have you. I mean, there's just so many examples like that. We also have something called a fishbowl exercise. Karen, do you want to explain the fishbowl? Yeah. Well, and I would just say, too, that one of the, the main advantages to the stereotypes exercise is that it sort of gets the nasty stuff out of the way early mm-hmm. in a non-combative way. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. not like the blues are calling the reds racist or you know the reds are calling the blues baby killers or tree huggers or mm-hmm. whatever stereotype comes to mind. It's sort of produced organically within the in-groups and then is reported out. And in so doing, the two groups can sort of already see what they might have in common mm. and start to you know, clarify the disagreements. Because I think one part of polarization and the tribalism and the echo chambers is that people begin to exist within this kind of partisan haze where they know that you know, the other side is uh, incomprehensible and, and ill-intentioned, but they might not actually understand where do we actually disagree. Mm. And so by starting with the stereotypes exercise and then going into what John mentioned is the fishbowl, um, whereby one group will be in the middle sitting in a circle and the other group will be sitting in a circle outside of them. And when the group is in the middle, it's their turn to speak and only them. So say the reds are in the middle they will speak about their political philosophy and their lived experience, as well as their reservations about their own philosophy, while the other group is outside of them just listening and taking notes. So this sort of gives people an opportunity to listen without waiting to make their next point. It's a window into the internal dialogue of the other group, which is something you're really almost never going to see in the partisan in partisan media. Right. right. It sounds incredibly interesting. Where does it go then? I mean, in other words, right. what's been the effects of the groups that you've had and, and so on in the time you've been operating? Yeah, so we see the workshops uh, not as an end in themselves, but really a, a beginning to an entree into a larger movement. So out of workshops will often materialize what we call a Better Angels Alliance. Um, You can sort of think of them as local Better Angels chapters. And this will basically be a group of a roughly even number of reds and blues, most of whom have participated in a workshop, who will continue to meet on an ongoing basis, continue to have conversations and and also start to do social events and, and get to know each other as friends and in so doing, begin to spread the work of Better Angels. So I'd say a key, a key point about the organization is that we are almost entirely volunteer-driven. We have a very small core staff, which includes John and myself, but the vast majority of, of people who are spreading this work are just everyday Americans with whom this resonates. Mm-hmm. And um, 
for which they have an enormous appetite across the political spectrum. Just the last point I was going to make is I think, um, as opposed to many other groups who are doing this work, a key distinction about Better Angels is that we're not pushing centrism. You know, we're not asking people to uh, abandon their positions or paper over their disagreements. What we're doing is building new ways for people to talk and understand each other, which creates the the trust and the relationships that allow for the exploration of common ground in, in good faith. And as that consensus emerges, they have the structure, the infrastructure through Better Angels to, emer- to, to organize around whatever that consensus may look like in their own particular Better Angels uh, alliance or the region in which they, they happen to be. I guess that was my next question, which you've sort of anticipated, which is, what's the theory of change here? Is it that they people then organize about things they agree with, even if they disagree about gun control or abortion or whatever it is, they might agree about, you know, the need for better health care or education or whatever it is? Or is it is it something else? It is that. That is a component of it, because we do believe that by creating the context uh, for more sort of empathetic uh, conversation to take place. We give ourselves the, the space to discover common ground where it may exist. Whereas if we are locked into an adversarial sort of exchange in perpetuity, uh, we'll never have the space to be able to realize the points at which we we may actually agree. Uh, so that is an aspect of it. But more fundamentally, we believe in the work of depolarization as being the project of preserving civil society, ultimately. And I think that the fundamental thing that, that people in American politics and maybe in Britain, too, are, have have uh, let slip away a little bit is an understanding of the fact that the integrity of the social fabric is necessary uh, for the stability and preservation and trust that we have in any of our institutions to endure, ultimately. The conversation ultimately can come down to, are we going to choose conversation or are we going to choose uh, complete domination and mm. violence. And obviously, we've seen that before in America. Our name, Better Angels, comes from Abraham's Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address in which he was addressing a nation on the brink of civil war. Mm. And he called on us to, to summon our Better Angels, which, which are already within us. And of course, the reality is that the civil war then broke out five weeks later mm. at Fort Sumter. And we've already seen some initial episodes uh, here within the United States of political violence. And so we sort of see this as potentially the greatest threat uh, facing our American democracy. Let me ask you one final question, which is on the podcast, we have this thing called the Jeffocracy, which is an alternative universe where my colleague Jeff is the is the kind of benign dictator. He, he says benign. Um, if he was to appoint you as the sort of, uh, as we'd say in Britain, the sort of ministers for... A kind of dialogue, uh, you know, understanding. What's the kind of first thing you would you would want to be doing? I, I would pay to mandate mandate a thing like this, as I am a person who's you know a little bit skeptical of mandated sensitivity trainings and things like that. <laughs> but I do think that as a part of uh, our ongoing sort of civic culture, one thing you might want to do in the Jeffocracy is encourage as a part of just perhaps college level or even high school education um, and beyond that, even on the community level, broad-based participation in the site in the types of sort of guided dialogue sorts of structures that we're pioneering here with 
better angels and that other groups are undertaking in different ways that gives people schooled and, and rehearsed and educated in the habit of a dialectic that is based primarily upon listening to understand the sort of experiential origins of other people's perspectives. Right. right. So as to more effectively be able to communicate your own in a way that actually lands uh, with resonance and empathy uh, upon upon other ears. And so as we become more educated as citizens in the art of interpersonal communication, I think we'll find that uh, our politics will improve accordingly. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, if I were minister of dialogue or what have you, the idea of setting up Better Angels workshops with our leaders uh, personally would, I think, be very valuable and instructive. So maybe in the UK, could we get together members of parliament? Could we get together, you know, Ed Miliband, Theresa May, uh, Jeremy Corbyn with two moderators to actually have this sort of structured workshop in which you guys don't just, um, you know, make your points about policy, but actually speak about your own lived experiences mm -hmm. and your own reservations and maybe then broadcast this to the public. So not only do they get a, a sense of, of you guys as a, a person, and uh, a more human sense of who you guys are and why you believe what you do. Um, but they also get to see this sort of discussion modeled uh, by their leaders instead of kind of what the, what is happening, which is the opposite, in which people are learning from their leaders to to bicker and to demonize. Right. Right. And the other thing I would do um, if in the, in the Jeffocracy as, as Minister of Dialogue is I'd try to partner with the Minister of Technology to see how could we um, enlist all this incredible technology for connecting people to serve this aim? How can we use technology effectively to uh, connect someone from Kansas to someone in New York City or connect someone in London to the Midlands? Hey, we're getting pretty excited about this Jeffocracy thing, guys. So are we. And look, I'm looking forward to my family therapy with Theresa May. <laughs> yes. That is going to be... Let it, let it if you want to moderate, we'll hop on the next uh, British Airways flight. De definitely. John and Kieran, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. And uh, let us know the next time you're stateside. Well, having taken on board everything we've heard in this week's episode, I, I, I want to say that I forgive you for not inviting me to the George Ezra lunch. Oh, that's so kind of you. And I forgive you for not telling me the end of the Leisure Centre story. <laughs> So, so we can now move good. on from both so, those things. So we can move on. The listeners now, we, will be so relieved to hear that they will yeah. never be brought up again. Well, I'm not saying that. We, are, we understand each other better now. I mean, I think there's a lot in this. Um, I mean, I think there's so much in it, it's kind of hard to know where to start. But I sort of think we're incredibly divided as a society. We make assumptions about people on the opposite side on the basis of ignorance. I think... We have fewer and fewer common institutions that bring people together. So therefore that increases a sense of, of ignorance. And so I, I think, you know, I think all of it has quite a lot to teach us really. So how do you think that it gets out there? Because you've got people doing great work and having these conversations. How do you think that gets out there into wider society? Or do you think that just the fact that people are having these conversations creates a ripple effect i think it is quite difficult because i think we're sort of we these organizations in their different ways are sort of substituting for what the way society has become or, or trying to compensate for the way society has become so fragmented 
I mean, it makes me think about schools becoming, you know, more like common institutions because it's all kinds of ways in which you bring people together who wouldn't otherwise meet. You know, and it relates back in a way to the episode we did last week on private schools and all that. Um, so I don't have easy answers, but I do think, I do think there's something going for it. And I, I, look, the other thing I, I honestly felt was politics and the way, way politics sort of behaves. Does, the example of it. The example, yeah. or non, the bad example does have an, a ripple effect, I think. But don't you think? Yeah, if you If you're bandying around words like sort of traitor, enemy, this, that, and the other. Wrecker. Yeah. You don't feel strongly about wrecker. What was that from? I don't know. It just seems like yeah. one of those yeah, sorts of does, words definitely. that people use. Then I think it does sort of, you know, and it's hard, but I think it does increase the sort of sense of, well, it sort of rubs off, I think, doesn't it? Definitely. And it's not just about being nice to everybody. I, I, I think that's the other thing about it. Is it's not lowest common denominator or everybody being nice or not being angry about injustice, but it is. A, and 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 I was struck by what the Better Angels people said. It's not about trying to convert people, but it is about if you understand people better, you might well, you might be able to persuade them, or you might it might sort of inform your own point of view. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, uh, something we just wanted to bring up here is we are after some help. We've been thinking about what we can do with the podcast and what we can do next. Um, and, and we thought it'd be useful to get some people together and have a little chat about it. So if you would be willing, chatteroo. a chatteroo, as Ed yeah. would say, yeah. Um, if you would be willing to have a chatteroo, give up a bit of time, then we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. And we just want to get a few people who already like the podcast together in a room and find out what you'd like to hear more of and run some ideas by you. Um, so if you fancy that, if you've got a couple of hours you could spare for Exclusive us. Exclusive sneak preview. Yes. Yeah. I mean, basically, we're going to milk you for your ideas. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know where it will be yet. I don't know if it'll be yeah. my house or Ed's house or whether we can all go to Nando's, yeah. but yeah. Um, it's, it's something we're actively looking yeah. to do. So if you fancy that, then email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. 
com, which is, of course, the regular email address uh, if you... Um, want to share your thoughts with anything you've heard in this or previous episodes or if you've got any ideas for future episodes i think it's fair to get, say that we got a lot of response to the private schools we did episode last week um we'll run through some of those this comes from tom barton who says i've always seen the very existence of private education as fundamentally incompatible with a fair or meritocratic society i went to a very good comprehensive school but went on to attend a russell group university and unsurprisingly many of the friends that i made there were from the seven percent rather than the 93 percent but many or perhaps most possessed a broadly left-wing progressive political outlook After a few drinks one night, I made the mistake of engaging a friend in a discussion about private education, expecting to find common ground. However, one of the worst moralistic arguments ensued between us. She'd attended an independent day school, and in spite of her staunch opposition to the idea of grammar schools and support for a comprehensive state system, she found my suggestion that private education should be phased out to be objectionable. Your podcast reassured me that the issue must be addressed by politicians in some way. I found Melissa and David's suggestions for reform uh, to be really compelling from a practical political perspective, and so much more useful than the uncomfortable compromisingly abolitionist viewpoint that got me into trouble so thanks very much uh, i still won't be reopening the discussion with said friend though uh, this one from a slightly different point of view comes from david hill i'm an avid listener to your podcast and really enjoy your discussions however i did feel the episode 71 on private schools a bit one-sided i'd like to add a quick comment that was missed by all of the contributors i live in an area where schools are chronically oversubscribed and budgets are not meeting the requirements of the schools I understand this is the case throughout the country. If so, can you explain how adding around 6 or 7% more children to a system that's already struggling would be in any way beneficial? The way I see it, people who send their children to private schools are essentially paying twice for the service as they're paying for the state education they're not taking and also the private. Can you or your contributors comment on how much the education budget would have to increase and whether this is a politically likely thing to happen given the financial pressures on all government departments at the moment? I think there's, this has also been raised on our Facebook page by at Prendo74, like the school podcast, as a middle class doctor, working class background who has one child in private school and one in normal. I do feel uncomfortable about the situation. I sent our second to private as best for him, although not for society. Two issues, who will pay for all the private school children to be educated in the state sector if abolished? Secondly, those parents paying for private schools already pay tax and don't use state school places while subsidising the state school sector. Now, I think there's two issues here. One is the tax question. I think the tax question is in a way easier because I think the thing I would say about paying tax and sending your kids to private school or using private healthcare is the tax you're paying is not specifically for your child it's a general contribution to good education just like you contribute to roads the nhs transport you know defense services in our country and there'll be lots of people who don't have children um or either had children of school age or never had children who are also contributing tax so i i must i don't have that much sympathy with the paying twice uh argument on the second argument, I went back to David Kiniston and his co-author Francis Green on this. And the, the reality is that the cost is going to depend on what your proposals are. So they calculate that if they, if you went ahead with their proposal of a third of private school places being allocated to current state school pupils, there'll be a cost of some, something like £300 million. It's a sort of complicated calculation, which I won't go into the details of. Clearly, though, if you 
you know, got rid of private schools, there'd be 7% of pupils who are currently in the private sector would go into the state sector. That would raise the cost of the education budget quite significantly. But I don't think that's what's being proposed, uh, certainly not at the moment. So, so I think there is a cost. I'd say overall, though, I don't think I don't think that this is that is a kind of deterrent to doing any reform here because I think the situation is sufficiently important for the future of education that and you're not proposing a massive change tomorrow that I think you'd find it affordable over time. And thanks to you if you got in touch about last week's episode. As I say, it got a big response and we haven't got time to go into them all now. Uh, but we read them all. And uh, if you feel like going on the Facebook page and continuing the conversation, then it's facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And here to pitch us some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Imran Youssef. Hello. 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 Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Imran, you brought some ideas along with you. What's the uh, What's the first one? The first idea was uh, making sure that the next generation of kids are taught in school how to become financially literate. Because for some reason, we don't teach kids at school we how to handle money. Learn to read and write so you can be part of the system and, uh, and get a job and make money. But we're not going to tell you how to handle this very important part of your life called money. And if you mess up, oh, too bad, there's a payday loan company that's ready to rip you off for 4,000% APR. Like, I wasn't taught how to handle money at school, and I learned the hard way. I made a lot of money after I dropped out of university in the games industry, lost it all. It was all my own fault. Because I was an idiot. What were you uh, doing in the games industry? Um, I was well, I was trying to become a video games designer. I ended up uh, becoming an assistant producer and then a games tester. I kind of had this wow. weird backwards thing. So you're just playing games? Yeah, but it's not fun. Because like, Ed and game. I were both <laughs> fans of the ZX Manic, Spectrum Manic, and Manic, Manic Minor. Minor. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. These are, these are you played games. Manic Minor. I have, but I was too young to like truly appreciate. Oh, well, like, thanks, thanks. To appreciate <laughs> it. Just a bit too <laughs> young. Just a bit. Just in. a little bit. Just a little bit. So, I mean, were you looking for bugs? You're just playing all day and yeah, you're looking for bugs. And you've got to... Um, not only find them, you've got to find them the first time, right? Uh, especially at Sega. Sega is like the Royal Marines of video games testing, uh, the quality assurance department. And uh, it was a great work ethic that they drawed into us because it served me as as an adult. Like, you know, you, you've got to do your job thoroughly into the highest level possible because that's what this brand demands of you. And if you want to be part of it, that's what you've got to do. And then you learn a life lesson of like, if you in your life are going to serve through your through your vocation, you've got to do it to the highest level possible. I've read a lot of books on wealth. Uh, Tony Robbins was a great resource to learn about wealth mastery. But if there's one book that you know you could read in a couple of days, if not a day, is, is The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Clayson. And they are um, parables of how to handle wealth. And when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, I get it. You know, th- this this is the perfect book to, for, for anyone to read when it comes to handling money. First of all, anything you make, there's part of it that you have to keep. And that is essentially save 10% of what you earn. You put that aside, you don't touch it. That becomes your security or it becomes, you know, money, for a deposit for a big ticket item like a house. And then um, as you make more money, some of it goes into investing, you know, invest in other people, invest in society, invest in things that will get better. So, you know, there was a point in time where you would have been really smart to invest in Sony PlayStation, in Steve Jobs jobs when he was you know uh reinvigorating apple and 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 the uh, 
and the digital animation industry. Okay. <laughs> um, him, uh, and yeah, Jeff. and Jeff, yeah, Jeff. and this podcast. This is the moment now, guys. Exactly. Send your money in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what we <laughs> to want. To Jeff at the podcast. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So we should teach financial literacy, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And it would be better if the government instituted it in schools, but nothing's stopping Can you from doing it. Can we throw in right a now. side module on what you should do if you're the prime minister and you have the opportunity to call a referendum? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I sort of think that, you know, if certain people had had that kind of education at school, maybe we wouldn't have been in this position. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That could be like quite a good... I mean, it's a niche topic. Yeah, it's a niche would topic. Would you have it as an option on your GCSEs or would I think it be mandatory? Be right? I think, yeah. definitely. All right. Uh, what's next, Imran? First aid should be taught in schools as well. Yes. Yeah, this I, I don't... And the reason this came up, I was in Sweden. You did the Heimlich manoeuvre on somebody. I wish I didn't know. I don't know. Right. I, I know of the Heimlich manoeuvre, yeah. but I don't technically know how to yeah, do I've it. Yeah, I've got no idea. I was driving. You know what it is. The Heimlich <laughs> yeah, yeah, but can you do it? Well, I if I was choking, could you do the thing? And it, I think I might, but it might go wrong. I mean, I might sort of <laughs> knowing you, yeah, it <laughs> involves being physically yeah, adept. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it might just sort of not work, really. So go on. You were in Sweden. I was in Sweden, and I was doing a gig out there. And on the way back, I was being driven back to the airport. And as we're driving, we're on the motorway, and then suddenly uh, there's two cars in front of us. And one car goes into the back of the other and flies oh. up into the air. And in that moment, I, I looked at it and went, this is a Michael Michael Bay film. And we're right behind it. And they both in, like skid off to the side. We get out the car. Um, the guy I was driving with calls uh, the ambulance. And I go over to the first car. And in the first car, his engine is leaking. Now, in the films, when that's happening, it's about to explode, yeah, yeah. right? And I'm like, oh, my God. He's alive, but he's having a fit. And I'm trying to open the door. The oh door won't open. God. It's locked. And I'm freaking out. Then I open the back door and I switch his engine off. So now, hopefully, it won't explode. And he's having a fit. And I'm like, I don't know what to do now. I know how to switch the engine yeah. off. But ha- ha- am I meant to move him? Am I meant to do something? I just don't know. Then that moment, I realized that, one, I'd had a near escape. But two... Like, fortunately, that ambulance turned up very quickly and there were loads of other people who got involved and started to help because, you know, human beings are largely great people going to help other people. But I didn't know first aid. And what about if that happened when there wasn't somebody around? definitely teach first aid. So we have to teach it in schools. It's really important. And some of the stuff is so much. So my mum was a nurse and she um, she used to teach cardiac resuscitation. And I don't know how to do it. And I'm her son. And she says it's the easiest thing. And, you know, you can really help somebody with having a cardiac arrest. But also people can choke. I mean, even adults on food. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what the Heimlich. if you do the Heimlich manoeuvre, I think I could try, but I might not work mm. we all heard about you know never take if you see a motorcyclist crash never take their helmet off because their helmet might be the thing that's keeping their right their spine together yeah, or whatever. yeah. and it we've learned that through watching remember the old episodes of 999 when we all used to watch tv on four channels and now it's just overload and so i didn't know what to do and just in that moment not knowing what to do you know if there wasn't other people around what could have happened so i think that's you know okay you're on yeah financial literacy first plus, aid first aid all right, what else? Referendum studies. <laughs> <laughs> Behaviours like talking in the cinema, having an argument in public over your phone, or just having an argument in public be- being loud, putting your feet up on the seats in the tube, uh, these people need to go to jail. <laughs> they just need to go <laughs> to jail. Zero tolerance. Just zero, like I'm just, come it's on like guys. Singapore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, this this part of me, I realise as I've gotten older, my politics have started to shift a little bit. We're going, look guys, we live in a great society, can, can we just behave and enjoy it? No, because some guy wants to talk really loud in the cinema to show just how maverick he is, and we're all just thinking, 
C word, right? I don't look like a tough guy, right? I mean, charming and handsome, but I don't look tough. <laughs> and if I go up, excuse me, but you know, you're being inconsiderate, it's going to start a fight. That's what's going to happen. It's the one place where I'm assertive is the cinema. I'm a very assertive shisha. You're a have a go hero yeah, in I the am, cinema. Yeah, yeah. But no, but not anywhere else. Nowhere else, no, just the cinema. I'll lean right over and get somebody in, in, right in somebody's face and go, can you stop talking, please? <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's great. It's like this whole other side of me that you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognise. Wow. Yeah. People are generally quite well behaved, though, aren't they? In the I cinema. I'm, I'm not in the cinema. I'm finding Which it an cinema increasing are you going problem. to? Various cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think. I wonder if you're not noticing people's bad behaviour. Because I am if a bad you are behavior. one of the bad behavior, right. yeah, behaviors. Well, I'm more you're shift uneasily in my seat. And You'd never of... look at your phone. Mm. Ed! Oh, it's oh, the worst. No. Only discreetly. It's never do, people yeah. think they're being discreet. It's I never put, discreet. I put my phone on airplane mode and put it in my pocket and I, d- I oh, don't well, look at it. Yeah. Well, I, I, well good execution. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I am the model citizen. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Well, I, I'm strongly into this, this idea. Yeah, Imran, um, mm. where can people people see you if they want to come and see you? What you're um, all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see uh, if you type in Imran Yusuf into YouTube, you can find my YouTube channel. Uh, Twenty five thousand subscribers and wow. over four and a half million hits. Wow! And what uh, happened? What, what do you do on that channel? Oh, that's all my stand up. So any stand up that I've done on television, I put on my YouTube channel, so it can be seen there. You can see me in clubs. I was just at the Comedy Store last weekend. That was my big dream. When I was a teenager, I was like, one day I want to play the Comedy Store, and it was so hard to break. And so and this hard. podcast, yeah, yeah, and this yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This I was what I was going. When I've conquered the Comedy Store, then I'll be ready for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imran, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. We want to live in the Imranocracy. <laughs> One day. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. And here we are. We're in the outro. You know what we should do? We should go shopping for thermal underwear together. You don't fancy it, do you? I was actually wearing some thermal underwear yesterday in Doncaster. Really? Was it that cold? Yeah, yeah, it was. So you already have yours. Yeah, I do. Where'd you get it from? Where does a man buy some thermal underwear? I can't remember. Do you want me to get you some for your birthday? Yeah, I don't want to borrow yours. I just want to be absolutely (laughs) clear about this. That's fine. Um, But of course, we've got one more episode before we go off on our uh, lads holiday to Iceland for reasons to be Icelandic. Yes. Very exciting. Uh, Should do the thank yous then. Thank you to Marina Cantacasino. Uh, to Joe from the Hope Not Hey and More in Common projects, to John Wood Jr. and Kieran O'Connor from Better Angels and comedian Imram Youssef. You must be feeling a little less glum after all that. Definitely. You've cheered me up, as have our guests. Emma Caution produced our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed C did our music. James Deacon did our idents. And... Emily Power. Emily did Power. Her artwork. She did. Once again, if you would like to come and have a chat about reasons to be cheerful and uh, what we could do cheeky with Nando's. it in the future, maybe a cheeky Nando's, who knows, uh, then do send us an email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. There He's- are other restaurant chains. <laughs> He's He's been a 103 year old tortoise. He's been a baby cheerful hippo. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Be cheerful nice. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.